0: Rockheads. This is Carl with an update on Music to Code By. On January 4th, 2016, I released the 11th Music to Code By track, Gold. That's right, there are now 11 25-minute tracks, including the original three. And you can download them all in one big zip file for less than 50 bucks at mtcb.po.com. Net Rocks, episode 1274, recorded Sunday, March 20th, 2016. Hey, geeks and nerds, it's time for another Geek Out with Carl and Richard. How are you doing, Richard Campbell?
1: I'm having a good time, man. This is one of those shows... Where I I was dreading it because it's a very controversial subject, but I feel good now with all the research done. And I realized, I just noticed in my notes, I first started taking notes on this subject in 2014. Yeah, we've been
0: planning to do something in this space for a long time.
1: Yeah, and unexpectedly, or maybe a little expectedly as I got deeper into it, it has split into multiple shows. Right. I mean, we did do the modern agriculture show before this, and even just in talking about genetic modification, it's going to be at least two shows. That's fine with me. There's lots to talk about. It's huge. And I still don't feel like we're going to cover everything. And we probably won't. No.
0: All right. Well, you know what time it is now. It's time for uh, Better no Framework. Awesome.
1: Hey, man. What do you got?
0: Richard, I've been uh, on a little food excursion of my own. A little? Yeah. <laughs> And <laughs> in, in February, February 1st, I started a uh, low carb diet and a couple weeks after that I went totally ketogenic, which means that you get most of your calories from fat, right? And just enough protein to maintain muscle mass. Yep. And no little to no carbs. I mean, just vegetables and incidental carbs, but sure. uh, no bread, no sugar, none none of the carb, carby things and carby vegetables that you would think of. Right. And what's happened? Well, I've lost 37 pounds. Nice. That's uh, today's March 21st. So in a little over two months, um, the biomarkers that I have for my type 2 diabetes have come down. Good. Yep. And uh, I settled, I learned on this show that I've been doing, 2ketodudes.com, which is my Better Know Framework. You can also go to 1274.pwop.me. But if you go to two, the number two, ketodudes.com, myself and Richard Morris, who developers will know from DevExpress, he used to work there. He uh, has done this way of eating for a couple of years, and he's down almost 100 pounds, and all his biomarkers of diabetes, type two, have gone away, and his doctors are amazed. So I learned by doing this show about intermittent fasting. You did some research into intermittent fasting before. I've done intermittent fasting. Yeah. So, you know. And it's amazing. Um, there, One of the shows is called The Fasting Show. And by the time I got to The Fasting Show, I had done a 60-hour fast to kick it off, mm-hmm. which dramatically lowered my insulin to a permanent level and increased my insulin sensitivity. Mm-hmm. And then I started doing uh, only eating dinner, which is a thing that I learned from John Sanmez, who is also a fan of this new show. Mm -hmm. And he eats only dinner, so you give yourself a five, six-hour window of eating, and uh, you get to fast all the rest of that time, which has a dramatic uh, effect on your insulin. Now, if you eat anything while you're supposedly fasting, you're not fasting anymore. Right. And uh, in order to get your insulin low, you have to have no food, not a little food, but no food. And it turns out, uh, evolutionarily speaking, our bodies are primed for this activity. Sure. What is the point of storing fat if we're not going to burn it? The problem right. is we've forgotten how to burn it because our insulin is too high. Well, because we haven't needed to. There's so much food around all the time. That's right. But if you lower your carbohydrates and increase your fat intake, your insulin goes down. And that is the only way in which your body, your liver, in fact, can turn all that body fat into fuel for the brain and the cells and all that stuff. And when you fast, um, growth hormone gets excreted to protect your muscles so you do not need to eat protein. And uh, then the meal that I have is a ketogenic meal which is, you know, as I said before, mostly fat, a little protein, and no carbs. And so the combination of intermittent fasting in one ketogenic meal every day turns out to have dramatic results. And I'm getting rid of visceral fat, which is around my liver and uh, in, in my organs and things like that. The heart loves ketones. The brain loves ketones. Uh, It's truly dramatic and it's a little uh, might be a little scary for most people because we've been programmed to eat carbohydrates all our life. And especially, uh, you know, doctors and the
1: FDA have told us to eat mostly carbohydrates. Well, the the other aspect of this is there's a line at which fasting becomes starving, but that's a long way down the path. You're absolutely right, Richard. Um, One of the myths of fasting is,
0: well, your muscles are going to be eaten by your body. And that's not true. Well, it can be. It depends on what mode you're in. Well, yes. And what I meant to say was it's not true if you have body fat. If you have body fat and your insulin is low, you're not eating carbohydrates – that fat is being consumed as fuel. You know, the, Richard Morris likes to say, the
1: Krispy Kreme that you ate 10 years ago is now being burned for fuel. <laughs> right. But the other side of this, you, you will absolutely lose muscle mass if you're not exercising and if you, you know, don't have enough protein to go around. And often when people aren't eating, they don't have a lot of energy, so they don't move around much. Well, there's a myth there too, which is, I don't want to do a whole geek out on,
0: on yeah. this, but, um, but it's worth talking about. When you're fasting, fasting, which means no food, no carbs, no protein, no fat, um, after a day or so, your body secretes growth hormone and that protects your muscle mass. There's a particular study that was done on this guy in Scotland who did 382 days of fasting, no food, water fast. And he lost no lean muscle mass whatsoever. And studies that have been done on fasting with fasting experiments show the same thing. The growth hormone that gets excreted protects your muscles and gives you the proteins that you need. But if you eat something, even protein triggers your pancreas to secrete insulin. But if you eat anything, your insulin goes up. You cannot access that fat. The growth hormone goes down. So people make the mistake when they fast to just eat a little bit. And that's actually worse. That's when you starve. Interesting Alrighty. stuff. <laughs> we could do a whole geek out on this. Yeah, I know, but could. but go to ketodudes.com if you want to learn more. It's been a fascinating
1: journey. All right. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1259, the last geek out we did, which was on modern agriculture, which, you know, got a nice range of conversation here. This is one of my favorite comments. This is from... Mike Cocksetter, who says, "I love the geekouts, and this one I found particularly good." As the show drew to an end, I was thinking, "But there's so much more to talk about." Oh yeah, so I was Story pleased to life. hear that there would be more. Yeah. Uh, projecting forward over the next fifty years, I can see some factors that could have a great effect on agriculture. Fifty years, dude. Uh huh. Try ten. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We've already covered population growth. Yes, yes, we have. Yep. Uh, But two other things that spring to mind that I would love to hear your opinion on. Oil is one and climate change is the other. Modern agriculture uses oil in nearly every aspect of food production, from tilling the soil to harvesting, drying, distribution, and packaging, and so on. If oil starts becoming much more expensive, is there an alternative that is practical for farming? Can alternative energy run a tractor? Given that a tractor needs lots of power, the ability to roam far away from normal energy supplies, and the need for light weight so as not to compact the soil. I'm really looking forward to more in this series and hope you have a chance to cover my points in this post thanks again for the great show well you know we already just went through a period where oil was really expensive Mm. right i mean it's it's over at the moment but we've already done that and there's a bunch of things even stuff we talked about in that matter agriculture show like we don't do three tillings on soil anymore there's just no need most farms do one tilling and there's plenty of farms now exploring no till growing you mean tilling, turning over the soil so it takes turning whatever vegetation exactly. is on top and making it compostable. Well, you're just tearing all of that. Yeah, tearing all that up because you're trying – when you go with monoculture growing, mm. you know, you only want one thing growing there. The no-till approaches are starting to say, hey, can we take advantage of low cover, right, specific low cover crops to grow our wheat crops over top of it, mm right and that, and the big piece on that one of the reasons we really tilled more than anything was it made it easier to plant seeds mm. we have more advanced seed planting solutions now that will allow us to plant through existing ground cover
0: and i suppose one of the reasons you till as i said was to you know take whatever weeds grass or other vegetation is on top turn that over so that it is a natural fertilizer but um, you know, with the fertilizers that they're using in commercial growing, there's no need for that either, is there?
1: It's pretty, you know, there's almost no need for soil, right? It's just we, we've done this uh, hydroponic growing as well where we just feed the nutrients directly through a, a liquid matrix. The the problem is it's too expensive, right? Soil is very good at growing food. Generally speaking, you, you till not right before you plant per se. You till to do that composting, but that composting takes time. So you're essentially laying the field fallow when you do that. It may just be in the off season or it may be for a full year, but that's the real reasons that you till. Um, seed planting uses cutters as well in old style seed planting, relatively speaking, but uh, new style seed planting, you're literally using these thing called seed drills, and you can just punch the seed right through the existing food base. Wow. So, absolutely, alternative energy is already being explored. We're consuming far less oil per ton of food than ever before. Um, that being said, oil is far from gone and uh, far from non-existent in agriculture. Where There's always going to be a balancing act. Uh, the larger oil consumer is the manufacturer of pesticides. Yeah. Most of them are petroleum-derived, and so there there is a whole issue there, and there are technologies out there. The neat thing that happens when oil prices go up is it becomes economically viable to explore new ways to do those things that aren't as dependent on oil. Mm. So, Mike, uh, the climate change discussion is a big one. There's going to be a whole show on it. So. Yeah. We'll leave that one for now. Mike, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET or via any of the social media. We post every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there, we read it on the show. We'll send you a mug.
0: And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. We, uh, We swap flies with him. Nice. All right. Where do we start? With genetically modified foods. I mean, we've already sort of started talking about it,
1: but Yeah. Let's start with the basic concept that humans have been genetically modifying their food for twelve thousand years. Yes, and
0: this is something that we forget. There was uh the whole idea of grafting plants together to combine their qualities. I have a tree in my front yard, Richard. Yeah. It's a it's a cherry tree, but it's two trees. It's one with pink flowers on top of one with white flowers. And nice. I never noticed it until a couple of years in. I'm like, hey, there's two trees in this tree. And it's very simply one was spliced onto the other one and they just fused together.
1: Well, and, and in fact, virtually every fruit tree you've ever seen was a graft. Yeah. Yeah. Because the the genetics of, say, apples are so unstable that if you take the seeds from a red delicious apple and plant them, you will not get red delicious apple trees, Hmm. right? They're not genetically stable enough. The tree you grow will probably be small apples that are bitter. And so, in fact, every red delicious, the reason it has that name, comes from the same tree. Right. The normal practice in fruit trees is that you cut away small sapling branches and you graft them on to other trees. So we have literally made fruits and vegetables in
0: the image that we wanted
1: them to be. Right. And I, and I just sent you a link and I'll include this in the show notes that is a collection of pictures of what fruits and vegetables look like and more in their original form. So it's just this idea of like oh. the wild watermelon. Was almost all the white part with a little bit of seed. The red part in watermelon, that's actually placenta. And you can tell because they show a painting by Giovanni
0: Stanchi, uh, or Stanchi, S-T-A-N-C-H-I, from between 1645 and 1672 of a watermelon. And it looks nothing like
1: a watermelon. It's all pith. we think of today. Yeah, it's all pith. And same with the bananas. Normal, original bananas had huge seeds on them. The modern banana, which is dying out because of a blight, right. has so few seeds that almost a third of its crop go into trying to find enough seeds to keep planting it. Yeah. Because we've we've bred them to the point where they basically don't make seeds anymore. And it goes on from here. You know, carrots were originally white. That the beta carotene that we now name carrots for, we evolved that trade in. Hmm. Well one of my favorite sets of vegetables to look at are the, the Brascia oleraceas? right? And what is that? That's, that's the wild cabbage. Hmm. So, we see evidence that humans were selectively breeding that plant on the coast of the Baltic when they were still hunter-gatherers. Wow. Right? They, they, they would make camps along the Baltic Sea in the summertime, and they would collapse them in the wintertime when they left. But they were picking certain plants and keeping them in the same location. So they encouraged the large-headed cabbage to first come along. We've got evidence that it's, you know, in the BC. But that same plant is responsible for cabbage, collard greens, kale, Brussels sprouts, broccoli, cauliflower, broccolini. It's all the same plant. Right. We've just been selectively breeding it for thousands of years. Humans like coleslaw, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> Pliny the Elder
0: wrote about the merits of cauliflower. You know, we wouldn't have a show on food without talking about Pliny the Elder. He just, <laughs> he comes up all the time in conversation. It's really true. I mean, the more you start looking around on the uh, on the internet, uh, the
1: more he comes up. He's like central to this story. It's very funny. Yeah. You know, have you ever heard of a plant? It's a Chinese broccoli called Gailan. No. Very popular here. But it's the same plant. And and since the brassica is from Western Europe, it's sort of evidence that the Silk Road was a Silk Road way before it was called the Silk Road. Okay. That some version of broccoli made it all the way east and became a popular food. Well, cabbage is a wonderful food for trade because it transports so well. Uh, Absolutely. And that turns out to be a very big issue. Yeah. So. Selective breeding has gone on a long time, and and nobody f- is afraid of selective breeding, although maybe they should be. Mm. You know, we've never done genetic engineering of chickens <laughs> in production. Yeah. Okay. And just with selective breeding, what we've done to chickens is kind of horrifying. And we talked about this before, didn't we? I don't think we've done it on the show, but it's certainly, I gathered this data a while ago because I was trying to get a comparison of what's happened to chicken. I mean, basically industrial farming now makes two kinds of chicken, the food chicken, right? They call the fryer mm. and the egg laying chicken. Yeah. Now they've by selective breeding alone, we've gotten egg layers to the point where, where they used to put out about 30 to 50 eggs a year, a hundred years ago. Mm. They now put out 300 eggs a year. Wow. And by the way, when you're breeding egg-laying chickens, you only want the females, right? Right. Don't talk to me about what happens to male chicks when they're from the egg-laying species. It's as horrifying as you can think of. If. Yeah. And on the food side of chickens... In 1957, a newborn chick weighed 34 grams, like an ounce and a half. Mm. And and in 60 days, it was up to about two pounds, although it really took another 60 days to be fully grown. Mm. By 1978, in 60 days, it was four pounds. So they doubled the weight of the chicken in the same amount of time. Mm. By 2005, we got it up to almost eight pounds. We doubled it again, and mostly in the form of breast meat to the point where about 25% of the birds, when they're ready for harvest, can, can't can even walk. And is this done by somebody saying, oh, this particular
0: bird has mutated and has a much larger breast. We're going to, you
1: know, use the genetic traits of this one for the rest gonna of our we going to breed that one, right? Yeah. This is pure selective breeding. This is I like the shape of that one. This one's bigger. Put that one in with the rooster. Let's make let's see what we get. Yeah. Over and over and over again. Mm. Crossbreeding into inbreeding. Wow. And deli- you know, deliberately. And so we've made a Frankenbird. Don't no two ways about it. And the <laughs> other thing to think about is we don't actually grow if you the modern fryer chicken is not alive for 60 days because huh. you don't want an eight-pound bird. It's too big. Yeah. Right? You really want a four-pound bird. So the reality is the average fryer chicken lives six weeks. Wow. And so really, if you think about it, what we've done now is turned that chicken into a meat-growing machine. Right. We feed it grain and antibiotics because it's living so close to its neighbors that it, it gets sick a lot. Mm. And uh, and then after six weeks, we've even bred it so the feathers come out easily. So we can more mechanically remove the feathers from them efficiently. Right? Yeah. This is, and this is all in the name of of reducing food costs. A chicken in every pot, they said during the, the Depression. That was the goal, a chicken in every pot.
0: So there's some scary stuff that you just talked about right there that most people will say, oh my god, how can I eat You know, meat that doesn't have antibiotics in it and I mean, forget about the GMO. We haven't even gotten to that point. But if you read, you know, the omnivore's dilemma, need to get there. <laughs> but if you've read the omnivore's dilemma or any of those books, or know about the industrial food complex, you know that they're squirting growth hormone into these cows and chickens and and uh, feeding them antibiotics like crazy, which is also causing antibiotic resistance, which is
1: almost uh, epidemic in terms of yep. losing their effectiveness. So, I think that part of the outcry against GMO is really an outcry against industrial food production. Mm. For the most part, we don't need to know about our food production anymore. But if you understand that chicken manufacturing has gotten to a very horrific state without any direct genetic modification except for crossbreeding, you understand that you're conjoining two issues there. Right. Okay? And... As people who are not happy with this, we have pressed against our lawmakers to make laws to make the chickens' lives a little less miserable.
0: And there are some chickens and some meat that you can buy that are supposedly free-range and do not have antibiotics and all that stuff, but you pay at the grocery
1: line. Well, that's the trade, right? Right. Agriculturalists are not trying to torture animals. That's not the goal. Right. Right. The goal was to produce more food for less money. Right. And and that has been accomplished. What's happened now is we have the luxury to look back and say, at what price? Yeah. And start discussing, am I prepared to pay more for my food to decrease the suffering of animals and to increase the quality of that food? right? Not every chicken breast is the same. Mm. How it was raised matters. What it was fed matters. You know, the outcry against the cholesterol in eggs had had much to do with what was being fed to the chicken Mm. as it did with our understanding of cholesterol. Right, which has
0: changed a lot
1: since then, obviously. Absolutely. The whole uh, BSD event, right? This this, uh, uh, mad cow disease came from feeding cow to cow which yeah. turns out to be a really bad idea not a good idea because we have an agricultural system that commoditizes the product protein is protein yeah. we don't make that distinction and as we've learned more again don't think anybody set out to make mad cow disease well there's a probably right?
0: a good reason evolutionarily speaking why the idea of cannibalism is repugnant to us yes And it may not have to do with our moral compass. It may have
1: to lie. The answer may be more biological. So once you get this idea that we have been manipulating the genetics of of animals and plants for a long, long time, and that industrialization just got us better at it, going faster with it, then you can start looking at what are the new things we're doing, right? Mm. And again, I don't believe that we're striking out against GMO rationally. All too often, the conversation about antigenetic modification looks an awful lot like the conversation about anti-climate change and right. anti-vaxxing. Or like any of They're those. all that same sort of alarmist mentality.
0: Right, because they do take some sophistication to understand in enough detail so that you can make a decision sanely. Right.
1: So... Being appalled with what we've done with agriculture so far is one thing. Let me tell you about some actual scary things. Were you ready for some scary oh, things? Well, I was. I was not necessarily looking forward to it, but I was expecting some scary things in this show, Richard. Right. So in the in the 1910s and 1920s, when we started understanding the structure of the atom and started understanding the electromagnetic spectrum in, in bigger detail, and nuclear options became a possibility. We started experimenting with using x-rays and gamma rays to create genetic diversity, right? Right. Now you think about one, one of the reasons we got so good at making chickens bigger and bigger is that their, their rate of growth is incredibly fast, right? When you can get a generation every 30 days, right? Maturity in, in 90 days, you can get a lot of generations going. So you can breed them quickly to get what you want quickly. But a plant often takes too long. It takes at least a year to see what the seed looks like or what the fruit looks like. So you can't breed them as quickly to be able to do experimentation. And if you're just counting on natural mutation, which in the end, quote, natural mutation means still hit with gamma rays, right? They're just coming from outside the planet. Right. So the fact that we use gamma rays to accelerate that process doesn't seem all that weird now, does it? Right. We've used chemicals and High energy particles to do damage to genetic material in plants and then grown the results to see what we got. Yeah, right. We have. We have since the 1930s. It's a normal thing. In fact, I would argue that every single foodstuff made today out of plants probably has mutagenic genes from this process. So do you call it irradiation? Is that what it is? Now, irradiation, typically irradiation is talked about as a different thing. That's for sterilizing food. Okay. Okay. But mutagenic organisms, and I've, I've just sent you a link in the, and I'll add this to the show notes as well. Okay. This is the IAEA, right? This is the, the main agricultural site for the world. This is their mutant variety database. So this is a collection of all the mutated food that is considered safe to eat. Would you like to know how many variations there are currently in the database? Well, who considers them safe? These are the experts that study them. The experts. Right? Hmm. Yeah.
0: I, I want to know what their
1: incentives are. Well, now you understand this has been going on for 80 years, mm-hmm. right? If it was going to kill us, it probably would have. Maybe it is. Right? You know, <laughs> but the reality is we count on mutation, Okay. we find feature we we look at those those the the mutants and the new feature they've got we like that it's a it's a benefit in some way right yeah. maybe it's more cold resistant right there's a more cold resistant version of rice in that database that was created by a gamma ray exposure right? yep. they even have the documentation about how they made that particular mutation now once they've done that initial mutation they will then breed it with other plants to get it to grow stably right They're looking for a particular feature and they'll they'll breed it over and over again with you so you' got a rice, you've successfully mutated with with the gamma radiation. This is long before you could look at its genes in any way. and but you can see its feature when it grows. and now you incorporate that into your breeding plan, breed the plant over and over again until you get a consistent growing version. So this is the the World Food Organization responsible for cataloging all of this information. Almost everything we've eaten. ...is mutated in some way. Wow. That is completely normal. This is considered organic. None of this falls into GMO in any way. It's considered organic for other reasons, though, right? I guess the organic label doesn't include this mutation stuff. Not at all. Organic is about your growing practices, Hmm. not your breeding practices. Right? And that gets us to a very important point in this whole conversation, which is that genetically modified organism, GMO, is a legal term, huh. not a food term. It's completely a legal concept. Hmm. When we got concerned with what uh, professional agriculturalists and the industrial agriculture machine were was doing to food we asked our lawmakers to put rules around it and so they had to come up with legal terms for those things that's how this works wow
0: that is scary richard whoa well guess what time it is now richard It must be that happy time again yeah there's nothing funny about this man <laughs> i'm scared to death <laughs> no joke today who can joke at a time like this <laughs> It's actually time to give away a experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Roman Jasek. Right, congratulations, Roman. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. Indeed. And Roman just won the D experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from our friends at developer express. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big get free stuff button, answer a few questions and join the .net rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .net rocks fan club, but you have to sign up to win. Uh, I don't have anything in my wish list recently. Richard, do you? Uh, I'd like a
1: phone system that works. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. Everything happens at once, right? So yeah. here we are. My basement's torn apart, and we're rebuilding it with all the new features and so forth. Yeah. And this phone system that I put in in 2009, it just took a header. And I had a backup plan in place because I'm a good little IT guy, but my backup plan was in a closet that has been cleaned out and stored because of the flood. Oh well. So I have to come up with a new solution now, but uh, I don't think it's going to. You know what's really interesting is this. Just like it, the flood was an opportunity to rethink how we're using the basement. Yeah. The phone system failure is a, is an opportunity to rethink how we use our phones. Yeah. Now, look, I don't want you to be scared, because in the end, everything I've talked about is pretty much natural. Gamma rays hit us every day. Gamma rays hit plants every day. And sometimes the plants repair the genetic modification, sometimes they mutate to it. For the most part, if the mutation is too severe, the plant dies off, Mm. right? So, when you realize that this is how plants have always evolved, Mm. all we've done is accelerated, it's not actually something to be afraid of. Except for one little point. What's that? Do we trust the people
0: with their fingers on the modification genes?
1: Now, we don't have fingers on the modification genes at this point. It's random, right? We're randomly damaging genes. We're looking at which ones grow, seeing if they have features that we like, and we're keeping them. Okay. Okay. So we're, we're in three levels of acceleration, right? First one is
0: grafting and selective breeding. The second mm-hmm. one is this sort of mutation observation, which speeds it up. And the right. third one is genetically modifying. And this, this is where, you know, that ethical question comes in because, you know, if the, if companies are out there patenting genes and processes for making things differently and better and very quickly, obviously, and things like CRISPR make that ridiculously cheap and easy. Do we trust them? How can we keep our eyes on these people?
1: Well let's talk about what we're really doing when we're genetically modifying food because we're not doing it for fun, right? I mean there's obvious things that we're trying to get. To. Sure. We're we're trying to expand the range of the plant, can it grow in colder environments, can it draw in wetter environments, mm. drier environments. Hotter environments. I mean that you know, and we need to do that because we're messing with the uh, the climate of the planet, and we're going to need to be able to move our food around.
0: And fundamentally, we want to increase our
1: yield, right? Right. We're trying to increase yield. We're trying to improve the nutritional value of the food. Right. Um, we're trying to protect the food from being damaged by pests. Yeah. Whether that is insects or weeds or disease. They're all things we're we're trying to add in these capabilities one way or the other. Okay. And, And again, we've been doing this for a long time. We're just getting better at it. As we started to understand the, way that plants actually function. And that's the thing that's interesting when you when you really study gene modifications. Gene modification came out of research into understanding how plants really worked, how they grew their fruit, yep. how they made their seeds, what that all looked like. And once we understood it better, it's like, hey, that means if we made an alteration here, we could actually improve things. So th- the core mechanism up until very recently, actually still really the core mechanism. every GMO plant you know of today, mm. including all of the ones with the glyphosate and so forth, which we're clearly going to carry to another show, mm-hmm. were modified more or less the same way with agrobacterium. Okay. So agrobacterium is a particular bacterium. This is the tumefaciens version of it. Okay. And it is absolutely a normal, natural process to do genetic modification. We call it a virus. Right? That's why we started calling software viruses viruses, because what viruses do is they inject new genetic material into cells. Right. And so, what happened is, as we understood that process, we realized, hey, we can take this agrobacterium, and we can breed it to get a particular type of plant cell into it that we want in our plant, whatever that may be. Yeah. Okay? So, in the case of making Roundup-ready crops, Monsanto figured out they found a plasmid, basically a a bit of genetic material, in a plant that was resistant to glyphosate. And so they got that plasmid into agrobacterium, which they can insert into other plants.
0: Now, you just said a whole bunch of stuff that we probably need to unwrap. One of them was Roundup-ready. Now, what is Roundup-ready? And for that matter, what is Roundup?
1: So Roundup is the herbicide that is most people are upset about these days when we come to GMO. This is Monsanto's most profitable product. Uh, I will literally do a whole show on it next because it's such a huge topic. But but the basic idea is that Roundup is something that kills all
0: the weeds and leaves the plants intact because right. they've been genetically modified to, to resist be resistant it. to it. Yeah,
1: that's right. And the mechanism they use, this is goes back into the 90s. So this has got nothing to do with really fancy genetic modification. This is a pretty basic one. This is taking a normal uh, bacteriological process of virus insertion, only now they're picking the plasmid, the kind of virus they're inserting into the plant. Mm. And by the way, it's not particularly reliable. Hmm. Typical time to make a genetic modification this way and create a reliable plant, five to ten years probably a hundred million dollars wow. that's why only a handful of companies do it Wow it's really hard to do and could they use something new like CRISPR Cas9 if that process got uh, more standardized absolutely they're and they're very interested in doing that now I mean that in terms of production crops that approach the agrobacterial approach is the norm mm. the, there's a couple of new approaches so one is called gene guns. Huh. So, now we take the gene, the same way we, which we'd normally try and incorporate into a plasmid, and we actually put it in these tiny pellets coated in gold, and we insert them using a gene gun into a plant. The gold naturally dissolves, and sometimes the gene actually adheres to a plant DNA. Now, this is often where you could say we're going wrong, okay? So, it, it adheres to a plant DNA. Does that mean it spreads to all the cells? Well, not it'll spread to one cell, but if that cell is the one that reproduces, that's good enough. And you fi- you're not firing one pellet. Think more shotgun. You're firing many, many pellets trying to get that particular plasmid to grow rapidly. Okay. Okay? All right. So, again, it's only so precise. But the difference between agrobacterium and the gene gun approach is this. Agrobacterium can carry plant DNA fairly well, but it can't carry other DNA particularly well. Okay. So, one of the science fiction kind of terrifying things you may have seen on the news is when they made, like, rabbits that glow in the dark yeah. by taking jellyfish genes right. and putting them into rabbits. The phosphorescent right? uh, qualities of right. jellyfish, yeah, that's a that's a, a sort of a genetic parlor trick that's going around right now. Yes. And believe me, none of this stuff is is in production. You can't buy a glow-in-the-dark rabbit, mm. right? But... It is experimentation is going on, and that's these new techniques allow us to take virtually any kind of genetic material that is interesting to us mm. and insert it into other genetic material, right? Agrobacterium sort of naturally confines itself. You can take plant genes and put them on other plant genes. So in a way, we're doing more precise crossbreeding, right? And You remember going back to our original agricultural show, bread wheat came from, we've now seen from genetic analysis, corn mm. wheat. Cross breeding with goat grass because they were planted side by side, they naturally eventually somehow the genetics blended, and you got this new kind of wheat. Huh? Right. Now we finally have tools, but you know, so Agrobacterium, we could have done that faster because you say, "Hey, I like this nature of goat grass and its softness." Da 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 da. I'll take this plasmid. I'll put it into another plant. So Agrobacterium tends to go plant to plant. That's fine. But the newer techniques now, we can pretty much take genes from anything, and that's where you get into sort of the ethical elements of this. Yeah, okay. Right? When you think about the radiation approaches, the mutagenic approaches, really all you're doing is smashing existing genes. You're not adding new ones. You're just smashing them. Mm. And that sort of starts, that's where the CRISPR conversation starts out. Right. Because CRISPR is a huge topic all by itself, and maybe we'll end up doing a show
0: on it. Well, we'll put a link to it anyway. It's a new—it's a new process by which you can very cheaply and reliably edit genes and replace one set of uh, one se- gene sequence with another one, and it's—it's it's having a huge impact across the spectrum.
1: And it's not necessarily that cheap or simple. It's just cheaper and simple than what they were doing. Every other method, including the gene method has a randomness to it. Mm. You're just firing those genes at the, at the cells and hoping for the best. Yeah. Where, I mean, the original CRISPR mechanism was really about removing genes right it was developed to do research and understanding genetics better they were trying to identify which particular gene is responsible for which particular trait Mm. and they discovered um, a totally natural process and this is the cas9 enzyme Mm. that allows you to uh that is actually built to fight viruses so that when viruses modify genes this is the mechanism that puts them back yeah and But it normally uses RNA that's already in the cell. So it already has another copy of pieces of its DNA so that it can repair itself. Mm. But CRISPR by itself will just do the cuts. It'll just take a little bit of genetic material out. And if you think about it, if you use CRISPR like that, it's not that different from the gamma ray approach. It's more precise. But in the end, all you're doing is smashing an an existing genetic material. But when you combine this entire mechanism, we can now take pretty much any gene we want and edited in right. The one other big difference with the CRISPR approach is that I can do multiple gene edits simultaneously. Interesting. In every other mechanism, so you think about it. I'm trying to add, I'm trying to add to a plant resistance to a fungus. Okay, and this is actually a problem going on today with the banana. Mm. Right. Yep. The Cavendish banana is dying out from the same blight that wiped out the Gros Michel banana in the fifties. The blight has evolved. It's now attacking the new banana that was the replacement. We've tried all kinds of things to try and fix it. And one of the things that genetic analysis has done to this fungus is realized it's hitting the plant in a lot of different ways. Mm. There's not one simple way to stop it. Mm -hmm. And with normal gene gun editing or even agrobacterium editing, you could introduce a trait to a plant, but it takes years to get it consistently breeding. Yeah, Right? Because of all these natural defenses – That biological systems has for genetic modification to get a modification to take, you have to try again and again and again until it's actually stable. In some ways, that's the validation mechanism that makes genetic modification safe. Mm. If it grows and reproduces reliably, in many ways, it's most likely safe. So CRISPR
0: slash Cas9 has a chance here because they can put together a sort of cocktail of uh, gene edits where right. where all the places where they think it might need, uh, all at the same time. So, boom, your genetics have changed.
1: It's a much more powerful tool. Yeah. Right? So, if we could figure out the four genes involved in the penetration mechanism of the fungus into the plant, mm. that we could make those four edits essentially in one pass mm. and then breed that plant to stability – we would it would take less time to make those changes. You think it takes several years to make one change? So if I have to make five changes, now it's many many years. Mm. But what if I could make all five changes and then it's one iteration of stability? Th- that's what's interesting with that. Do you think that uh, we've gotten we as a species have gotten sort of complacent with
0: just the amount of good food and the 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 uh, avoid and the avoidance of problems that that have typically ravaged our food
1: supply throughout the years? I think that's part of it. And this is also where you get into the, like, the anti-vaxxer movement. We've had so little measles for so long, we're just not afraid of it anymore. Right. Right? We've had this swing from everything needs to be clean, although we're still obsessed with cleanliness, mm. uh, to, you know, white bread is bad. Mm. Right? White bread was originally the future bread. It was the better bread. Right? right? We've had these oscillations. It was Wonderful. And- It was wonderful. Exactly. So let me talk you through, as we're running out of time here, a few GMO products. Like the original GMO product that falls into the legal classification of GMO using the agroplasmid approach was the flavor saver tomato. Did you ever hear that?
0: Well, I knew tomatoes were genetically modified, um,
1: and they have been for a long time, but I didn't ever hear that word, that term particularly. Flavor Saver was a brand. It only was around for a few years, three or four years is all the, all that the company lasted. The company was called Calgene and they were a genetic company, right? Okay. They didn't know a lot about selling tomatoes, but they'd figured out this, what they understood the tomato better than anybody else. Mm. And they understood that t- how tomatoes actually ripen. What they realized was the ripening for flavor and the ripening for color and the ripening for texture are all different. Wow. Now, the problem with tomatoes is if you actually take them fully ripe and try and ship them, you'll destroy them because they're soft. That's why people grow them at home. Because they're delicious that way. So normal tomatoes, and we could do a whole show on the grocery store process. Maybe we should. Let us know. Definitely. They ship them green. They have to. Yep. And that's why they taste like crap. Yep. That's why they're mealy. But the flavor saver, they figured out how to separate ripening the fruit so that it tastes good from softening the fruit. Hmm. Two different things. Right, You can ship a tomato green, but people won't buy it green. They want it red. So you treat the tomato with ethylene. Ethylene makes the tomato turn red, but it doesn't ripen the tomato for taste. What What the flavor saver tomato did was that they had suppressed the chemical compound that causes the tomato to soften so that you could fully ripen the tomato on the vine. In fact, it would even turn red, Hmm. but it was still hard. So because it was still hard, you could ship it. And then did it complete its process en route to the grocery store and in the in the store itself? Yes. You actually gave well when you got to the grocery store, you gave it the special spray that in activated that compound that would naturally soften the tomato and it would be soft. Interesting. So it'd be a normal ripe tomato. Was it safe? The FDA approved it. Does it that right? was it safe? <laughs> Is driving safe? (laughs) Is flying safe? Is breathing safe? Right? What they saw was we have not significantly modified this plant. All we've done is suppressed the ability for it to soften, and then we enable it later. Yeah, okay. Okay? And so that's why it got approved. This whole attitude that government organizations are incompetent is a recent thing. Yeah. For a long time, we trusted that we paid the best professionals in the world to actually understand this stuff. You know, and we could have a whole conversation, and maybe we will, about how that process may have been subverted, as well as how the public perceives May it. have been.
0: The FDA is one of the most corrupt government agencies that we know.
1: Yeah, most corrupt is a hard concept, but we'll talk about that. Well, it certainly is corrupt. Well, is it? That's an interesting question. The interesting thing, of course, is the flavor Savers gone. You never guess who bought the company when it went bankrupt. Monsanto. Why, you'd be correct, sir. Yes, I knew. Yeah. Now, let me say something very nice about Monsanto, and I'll tell you another story. This is the Hawaiian papaya. Okay. So, in 1995, there were almost no papayas being grown in Hawaii anymore because of the ring spot virus. Yep. The the ring spot virus was transmitted by insects, typically aphids, which are almost impossible to to stop, but it was actually a virus that went into the plant, and it ruined it, turned it, it made it spotty and soft, and it would rot very quickly. Uh Uh-oh. Okay? And so... They tried every. They tried selectively breeding that problem out. They tried crop rotation and discipline to get rid of the virus and so forth. They tried quarantining different plants. They did. They did all of the least expensive solutions to try and solve it because genetic modification is extremely expensive. Mm. So it wasn't until all other options had been sort of buried that the genet- They used genetic analysis to understand what this illness was, right, and realized that. In the, the, the papaya DNA was susceptible to this particular virus modification mm. that would ruin it. Mm. But there were other plants that were not susceptible to ring spot virus. Mm. And so, government researchers actually said, if we could modify, a, take a gene from the virus itself, mm-hmm. known as the co-protein, and embed it into the skin of the, the papaya, the papaya would be resistant to it. And it was actually Monsanto- who did the work they actually did the agrobacterium plasmid to actually figure that out and then they gave it to the hawaiian farmers association Hmm. now they said point blank that it's like look there's no money in it there's not enough papaya for this to be a business we'd be interested in anyway we know how to do this so we'll do it it got approved and so forth we'll provide these modified seeds at cost right knowing it would reproduce on its own anyway Hmm. And the reality of this is that this virus, which had been par, transmitted from insects for a long time, this is something that's been in food for a long time. It's not dangerous in any way. It doesn't affect people. It only makes the papaya go soft and rot, right? That's all ring spot virus does. Mm. But now it was a genetically modified food. And so it actually got attacked, right? In, 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 when they started growing it in 1999, People started freaking out about it. Actually, there were vandals that destroyed cheese, calling it genetic pollution, recognizing if they didn't do this, there would be no papaya at all, hmm. right? And there was a paper produced in 2002 that said there are parts of the gene in the ringspot virus that look like an allergen, hmm. right? But there was no actual, there, there was no complete study that actually said, here's how you trigger the allergy and so forth. But they used that study to attack it for further, uh, further on. There were six modified amino acids of the 280 in the papaya gene. That was the modification that they made. Hmm. Right. And eventually people lost interest in this. It was only the papaya. People stopped caring. Uh, Japan approved it in 2011, started growing it there as well because the ring spot virus has been spreading around the world. So this is now like the alternative. The only reason papaya still exists Hmm. is this now modified version. Wow. Right. So. There's no money in it from Monsanto, even though they did the work. The research was originally done by public sector scientists anyway. It doesn't cross-pollinate to other plants, so it's not really affecting anything. And more importantly, because the plant's now immune to ring spot, you don't spray pesticides on it anymore to try and stop it. They used to try and kill all the aphids to stop ring spot, but aphids are so plentiful, you couldn't use enough uh, pesticide. Wow. So it's one of these examples of genetic modification that... Benefited everybody in the end, yeah. Right, and it looks like it's the only chance for us to say the Cavendish banana as well. Hmm. We we really don't have any other option, right? Well, it's be we interesting. Two more. St- it'll oh, be a, well.
0: It'll be really interesting to follow that story. I learned about uh, CRISPR Cas nine from uh, Radiolab, and we've talked about it before. Uh, and I'm always watching the news to see
1: how see how that plays out. Well, and to the, at this point, there have been no products made using CRISPR right. so we, it's just a research piece and it's, this is part of the challenge I think most people have I think the scariest time for mutating crops and so forth genetic modification was probably in the 50s and 60s with the sheer amount of mutagenic behavior that was going on mm. and only a marginal understanding of what was going on now that we know so much more and we're much more precise in what we're doing it's far less threatening Yeah. have you heard of golden rice tell me so golden rice is genetically modified rice. Now, why are they modifying the, the genetics of rice? Vitamin A deficiency. Hmm. So in Southeast Asia, it is hard to get vitamin enough vitamin A to keep yourself healthy, actually. It's a real battle. In fact, hundreds of thousands of children go blind because of vitamin A deficiency. It's considered a, a major health crisis. And the Office of Humanitarian Services in the UN is spending a lot of money to give kids vitamin A in the form of liquid a couple of times a year so they get enough vitamin A to maintain their site because they just don't have access to beta carotene the way we do. These are poor people, and their primary staple crop is rice. And so there was this pretty good idea back in 1999 to start incorporating beta carotene into rice. Mm. Now, again, they're using that agrobacterium, so they were only using genes from other plants, Hmm. daffodils typically. Uh, was the initial thing. And it didn't put enough beta carotene in the plant to actually make a difference. Mm. There was, again, no money involved. This was pure government science trying to save lives. Yeah. Uh, it got attacked because it was genetically modified. Of course it did. Mm. And it and it was a double whammy that it wasn't enough beta carotene to make a difference. By 2005, they'd actually raised, by doing additional crossbreeding and additional genetic modifications, they'd raised the beta carotene by 20 times. Wow. So that now... Uh, There was a Chinese study done in 2008 that said a 50-gram serving of the golden rice would give a child 60% of their daily intake of vitamin A. Wow, that's amazing. It's huge. And yet, there are organizations that continuously attack this product so that it's still not available Hmm. to most people. The UN can only afford to go in and give children these doses of vitamin A twice a year, which is not good for them. They still have sight problems. Right. They really should be getting vitamin A every day. This is a good solution to the problem. But because it's called GMO, it's just attacked. Well, this gets me back to the thing I said earlier, which is, and I think
0: people's fear of GMO is that it seems like a binary decision, either yes or no. You either allow all GMO food in or you don't. And while we don't have a fear of things that take more time, thought, money, money, and resources to modify right like is the way we've been doing it so far the fact that a company like monsanto with their finger on the CRISPR gun could just uh, use this to boost their own sales or push food on people or bully farmers into growing food that is beneficial to them not necessarily beneficial to us i think that's what worries people about gmo is am i off base there no, I think that a lot of
1: people are worried about that. There's just no actual evidence. There's no actual
0: right? evidence of what
1: of uh, of any of these things actually happening. Of months, genetically modified food take a long
0: time to make. But are you saying and there's no evidence that companies like Monsanto will
1: modify the genes of their seeds for their own benefit? Well, they absolutely will, and I, and I'll do a whole show on that. Okay, when, when, when we get there, but. You always do stuff for your own benefit. The question is, does it benefit other people, right? Right. Is it a win-win? Right. In the end, the primary benefit to the farmer is they grow more food for less money, mm. right? And does not Monsanto deserve to make a profit from that? Well, sure it does. But one of the things they
0: do is they make seeds that you can't re-harvest. In other words,
1: you have to buy seed from Monsanto every year. So that that turns out to not be true. Really? So the Terminator gene concept, which is the idea that seeds will be sterile, never made it out of the patent office. No kidding. Okay. That being said, virtually every farmer buys seed. Every year. Every year. Okay. Because it grows more food. The process of growing seed is different from growing food. All right. I got you. Right? So you can plant the seeds from your previous crop. You'll just get less yield from them.
0: Well, that's great to know, Richard. And this is why we have these
1: conversations. Right. It's a totally normal process in modern agriculture to grow seed separately from food. Okay. Because the process of growing seed to get that high yield is different from growing it for food.
0: All right. So in all of your research, you're saying you haven't find any evidence that Monsanto has done
1: anything that isn't also good for its customers. Not true. I absolutely have found issues with all of that. Oh. They have totally run afoul of the patent process. But understand, that's not them trying to kill farmers. That's not the business they're actually yeah. in, right? That's them the, the patent law is clear. If you don't protect your patent, you don't have your patent. Yeah, right. Right? So they're you know, and you combine that with a legal system in the United States specifically that is largely built around bullying. Yep right, forcing settlement rather than actual negotiation, yep. and you get the situations that you see. And I'm not saying Monsanto is blameless in any stretch of the imagination. But in
0: the environment that they're in legally, which I
1: agree is ridiculous, uh, that that happens. Right. And and on top of that is this issue of patents do expire. So the gli- the past non-glyphosate has expired. Anybody can make glyphosate now, hmm. Right. So, how does Monsanto continue to make money from that product? Mm -hmm. With their genetically modified seeds. I see. Right, That's the product they can still protect. That's the product they can continue to sell. They can't protect the herbicide anymore, so they're trying to protect the plant. And that gets us into a whole conversation, Mm. which again, might be its own show. People have to tell us they want to do this, Mm. about the problems we have on patenting genetics. Right, Really saying, if you learn something about the a natural process on how a plant grows, do you deserve a patent on that? Hmm. And, if you, you know, I don't think we have a whole lot of problem with if you modify a plant a particular way, you're allowed to sell that plant. The question is, if somebody else makes the same modification and came to it their own way, their own route, is that actually distinct stuff? They, can you stop someone because they've made the same modification by discovering the same things? Right? If mm-hmm. you learn that this modification in a gene will cause this plant to grow twice as much, that's actually a natural process. It's that modification. It's the only one. It's unique. Mm. You didn't invent it. You found it. Yeah. Do so you deserve to keep it to yourself? Mm-hmm. Okay. So what I have planned next is a show specifically. So we have only, if you think about all the stories I've told here about genetic modification, they're mostly about increasing the yield on food. Protecting food from disease, mm-hmm. uh, you know, ex- extending the nutritional value of food. All fairly positive things. Yeah. But it's not the only thing that we modify for. The the pesticide-resistant side and so forth, and this is the thing, the thing people are most sensitive about, is a huge topic. And it's why I've spun it off as its own show. We're going to talk about pesticide-resistant crops in the next show. But I can think of several others we could go into here. So, I'm, I'm happy to have folks send us emails or write to us on the show notes itself about what they'd like to hear next. I'm also thinking, how long do we want to talk about agriculture? Because there's some cool stuff going on in space. (laughs) Yeah, there is, isn't there? That I wouldn't
0: mind talking (laughs) about as well. Yeah, awesome, Richard. Well, this just whets my appetite for the next one, man. I love it. Yeah. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.